847 is 366 and 7. Welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, my focus is on composer John Barry, uh, by way of a recurring segment I like to title Listening To as it will spotlight a specific composer. I always enjoy figuring out uh, what are the hallmarks, what are the defining features of a notable composer, uh, movie and TV music, kind of what gives it their unique stamp, uh, you know, such as what makes a Bernard Herrmann score sound like a Bernard Herrmann score, or Thomas Newman, or uh, Jerry Goldsmith, or others. Um, And so I like to kind of, you know, figure out what are the aspects we can listen for, uh, whether certain instruments or just a musical structure, how they approach a project. So John Barry uh, was an immensely talented and unique composer who is uh, often imitated but never duplicated. Um, He's a household name, uh, or at least his music is, um, which gained notice and notoriety uh, with general audiences um, mainly through two avenues. Um, One being due to the the sweeping uh, romantic pictures like Somewhere in Time and Out of Africa and uh, also Dances with Wolves. And also thanks to his music for 11 installments of the James Bond series. Um, For this particular uh, second avenue, um, Barry kind of unknowingly created an entire subgenre of movie music, uh, that being the sound of the quote-unquote spy movie. It's a sound that really didn't exist before in the spy genre in movies. Um, Of course, James Bond movie is its own type of spy movie that didn't quite exist before either, since it was kind of taking a a more uh, tongue-in-cheek sort of look at at spies. But Barry's colorful, swaggering mix of jazz and swing and orchestral elements really kind of embedded itself in the subconsciousness of audiences everywhere. And it persists to this day um, in movies and TV whenever any current composer attempts to generate an exciting, fun-filled spy movie score it's typically you know kind of a james bond sound which is a john barry sound essentially um but uh barry's also a composer of great range and depth and and i think maybe sometimes he gets too quickly categorized by these two highly popular aspects of his career now it may not be as well known to general audiences that uh john barry could be considered one of the first film composers who came from the world of pop music Um, in this case, pop music of the late 50s and early 60s. But it's an early example that was followed uh, by current composers such as Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer, themselves formerly of uh, a pop rock uh, genre. Uh, But Barry had his own style and sound right from the start of his career, um, which he continued to develop from the late 50s until the 2000s, before he passed away in uh, 2011. So his sonic stamp on movies is really unmistakable uh, in the same way that as Herman and Mancini and Goldsmith and Williams have achieved. There's really nothing generic about him, um, which is, you know, interesting because when, when he does seem to be imitated, sometimes the imitation sound uh, can sound generic, but you can sense Barry as a person in the music, which I think is what really gives it that uh, uniqueness. So, 
in this episode, I'm going to focus on his non-Bond work, his non-James Bond movies, um, as I'd rather save all that 007 goodness for its own episode. Uh, I should begin by mentioning he was born in York, England in 1933. Um, he, interestingly enough, became steeped in the craft of movie making thanks to the fact that his father owned several local cinemas. Um, this allowed the young John Barry to watch, observe, and absorb uh, movies of all types. Um, and also, it's where he developed his love of movie music. He had talked about in interviews how, um, even when as a youngster watching um, Mickey Mouse cartoons, that he still remembers sort of subconsciously uh, focusing more on the music than the images. And he also learned how to run a movie projector, too. <laughs> he uh, studied piano and harmony and counterpoint. Um, the latter, uh, he studied uh, with a choir master at York Minster, which is something I wanted to mention because it plays a part later in his career. Uh, he also learned trumpet, eventually performing with jazz combos, uh, both before, after, and during his time in the Army, um, arranging tunes and, uh, and composing some material there. Um, and it's funny, he actually took a correspondence course on jazz composition during this time uh, from a man named Bill Russo, uh, who I learned was the composer for the legendary uh, Stan Kenton, who was a very popular uh, jazz band leader um, back then at that time. Um, so, you know, that kind of gave Barry a foundation in, uh, in jazz composition and arranging and orchestration. Um, so then Barry later started his own band, uh, the John Barry Seven, uh, in the late in the late fifties. Um, he had had told interviews at different times he never really wanted he always wanted to be his own boss, and so one of the best ways that he could be his own boss was by starting his own band. So the John Barry Seven uh, was started in the late fifties and uh, started to uh, arrange and compose uh, he composed some of his own original material and arrange other uh, other tunes uh, for performance and so here's an example of something from him uh, from 1960 uh, it's a, a pop tune called beat for it's an instrumental pop tune I should say called beat for beatniks <laughs> So that tune has a really great swinging quality to it, as, as well as kind of a threatening quality, uh, thanks to the saxophones and the low brass, um, like you're about to get jumped by a gang of greasers wearing uh, leather jackets. But uh, that was an example of his composition, his jazz compositions that he was doing at the time with John Barry Seven. Um, but he, like I said, he was also doing a lot of arranging of other people's melodic material. And an example of that is this other song uh, around the same time period called Hit and Miss, uh, which uh, I will play a little bit of that here. Thank you. 
So I think his time in the late 50s, early 60s pop world, um, it uh, in the John Barry 7 and playing other jazz uh, combos, uh, really kind of served uh, his his film music career uh, well later because it kind of uh, gave him the uh, foundation of song structure. So his melodies, you know, still kind of always had a, a song-like feel to them, the structure of like a verse, chorus, verse. Um, and then also his skills as an arranger um, really helped him in the Bond movie era and in other instances where he had to adapt uh, either his own song or someone else's songs into a score. So he got, you know, he provided fantastic and varied arrangements um, throughout the rest of his career in terms of his, his film scores. So things moved pretty fast uh, after that. Uh, he uh, had some hit records um, with John Barry Seven as, and as a ranger and conductor and composer and then started touring with Paul Anka, uh, interestingly enough. Um, and during his time touring with uh, Paul Anka, he connected with a, a popular UK singer at the time named Adam Faith. Um, and the two of them started collaborating on uh, different uh, songs and pop records. And then movie producers started looking towards Adam Faith to capitalize on his popularity with the, uh, the teenage audience. And um, he did a couple movies, and he actually brought along John Barry to arrange and compose music for those movies. Uh, and one example being a, a movie from 1959 called Beat Girl. Um, so that kind of was his entry point into that world, which uh, he had spoken about in interviews that he always wanted to break into film composing, but it just seemed like this impenetrable club. But uh, through that uh, those, that time as, uh, in the pop world in the late 50s, early 60s, it kind of gave him the entry point. And as you can imagine, uh, the uh, the music he provided for these Adam Faith movies, the jazz tunes, kind of brought him to the attention of other movie producers and directors who uh, asked him to do the same for their productions. And one of these early ones in 1962 uh, is a movie called The L-Shaped Room, which he provided some jazz music for. And the, the uh, director for L-Shaped Room was Brian Forbes. And so this started a collaboration uh, between uh, Barry and Forbes that uh, lasted a number of pictures. Um, and so after the L-Shaped Room in 62, um, Barry was able to provide more uh, original music for his next movie, Seance on a Wet Afternoon. So this was in 1964, and it wasn't a movie that required a, a jazzy score. It required uh, more of a quirky, small-scale uh, a score with that that uh, Barry uh, he utilized xylophones and piccolos and flutes and uh, and piano kind of kept it small scale and, and very kind of um, offbeat a little bit. Uh, the the movie uh, has to do with a, a husband and wife. The wife who's a medium they they stage a kidnapping that they know that they can solve. Um, but uh, it, it was it started that movie in 1964 and then also Zulu the same year started to provide um, Barry with more opportunities for orchestral writing in film. So I want to play a little bit of uh, Seance on a Wet Afternoon.
Concurrent with all of this uh, was John Barry's early work on the James Bond series, uh, specifically for Much With Love in 1963 and Goldfinger in 1964. The latter's massive success uh, brought him uh, so much acclaim and popularity, really put him on the, the short list of everyone's A-list favorite composer. Um, and even, you know, he was charting on the, the pop charts again, uh, thanks to the, the title song uh, as sung by Shirley Bassey. So, uh, along with director Brian Forbes, uh, Barry began working um, often with director Richard Lester, uh, starting with The Knack in 1965, uh, the full title of which is The Knack and How to Get It. So, the year before, in 64, Richard Lester had directed The Beatles in Hard Day's Night, so he was definitely coming off of the uh, acclaim from that. And uh, The Knack also uh, stars Michael Crawford, who uh, will eventually become, or eventually became, the uh, Phantom of the Opera of uh, an Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical. But uh, John Barry's score uh, for The Knack is really one of his most memorable. It, it has an indelible main theme. Um, and it, I had was unaware of it up until the late 90s when it was re-released on CD. And so when I picked it up, it really opened up my eyes and ears to uh, John Barry beyond the Bond films and Dances with Wolves. And and uh, it, it showcases a lot of his jazz roots in it, um, but it also has this sort of uh, this female uh, vocals in it, this sort of uh, wordless female vocalist, uh, which give it this... Uh, mysterious kind of quality, but it also has this mischievous edge to it, um, and it's it's such a great score and it's such a great tune, and um, it, so it, it really is. It became quickly one of my top ten favorite John Barry scores. Um, but here is the main theme from the Knack. That theme for The Knack also had a version with lyrics, uh, so really showcasing uh, Barry's ability to easily adapt his melodies to song, and then also to arrange that melody throughout the movie in various presentations, never the same way twice. So this just goes back to his foundation um, as in terms of jazz uh, composition and jazz arrangement and how that you know how, how he learned that song structure um, and also how he learned you know how to make those colorful arrangements uh, of a melody of a song uh, you know to, to you never really tire of hearing it but the very next year 
brought John Barry a movie that uh, resulted in not only in another huge uh, success for him uh, critically and commercially, but it also resulted in his first and second Oscar wins of his career for best song and best score. An amazing achievement considering he'd only been composing for film at that time for around six years. Uh, but that film uh, was a family adventure uh, set in Africa um, and was called Born Free. Born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, born free to follow your heart. Live free, and beauty surrounds you. The world still astounds you It's time you look at a star Stay free Where no walls divide you You're free as a roaring tide So there's no need to That was the vocal version of Barry's theme for Born Free, as sung by Matt Monroe, who had also sung on uh, the title tune for, for Marsh With Love. Um, but it's interesting with, uh, with Born Free uh, that, uh, that the producers for the film had asked uh, Barry when he was, you know, one of the most, po- had, had, like I said, he had skyrocketed to everyone's uh, A-list and was one of the most popular film composers at that time in, in the 60s. But um, he had previously done, you know, two films set in Africa uh, with Zulu, which I had mentioned back in 1964, and also another movie uh, called Mr. Moses in 1965. So I think it's kind of funny in terms of those trends um, that you somehow become the guy scoring, you know, movie set in Africa, but it wasn't really on purpose. Um, but uh, but yeah, Barry provided a, a you know a score that uh, again became a huge popular success. The movie became popular. It was again chart topping for him in terms of the song. But then you know winning his first and second Oscars of what uh, would wind up being five wins total in his career uh, was an amazing achievement. Now I also want to play the instrumental version of this theme from Born Free. Uh, as I think it represents an early example of the sound and approach that John Barry eventually would become most widely known for years later uh, in scores uh, such as uh, Out of Africa and Dance with Wolves and even ones from the 70s like King Kong and the Black Hole. Um, it features the long Langorus theme uh, for, you know, an epic vista um, the, that has a song-like melody uh, that's voiced on strings. Um, that's then repeated in a higher octave. Uh, and that melody has uh, contours that uh, almost seem to represent the shape of the land, sort of rising and falling and having these great leaps. And it's sort of punctuated by big brass and French horns. Uh, the harmonies are kind of stacked in a fascinating manner, sort of emphasizing the high and the low registers. Uh, there's even a, a circular figure in the cellos underneath it all that sort of adds this sense of motion. So I, I, that's just something you know, I, you know, kind of in hindsight looking back. And when I started listening to John Barry, it was, you know, around the 80s. So I sort of had to work backwards from uh, Dances with Wolves and Living Daylights and some of the others and then kind of discover what his, you know, foundation was. 
And so when I hit upon Born Free, to me, like I said, I think it kind of represents that early example of what would become, you know, one of his most popular, you know, styles and sounds uh, for for general audiences and for fans. Uh, So here's the instrumental version of that theme from Born Free. So uh, John Barry was continuing to exhibit growth and maturity as a composer, um, as on display in, in Born Free. And then in the next year, with 1967's You Only Live Twice, uh, which kind of showed his growth also as a composer just for the Bond movies. Uh, that was pretty much arguably the zenith of James Bond's popularity in the 60s. Um, but uh, this this growth and maturity uh, in his in his compositions was on display in 1968 um, in two more projects, Deadfall and The Line in Winter. So Barry's command of the orchestra uh, continued to impress audiences and critics, and he was proving himself t- um, to be more than just a jazz arranger um, or a popular songwriter, which he was awesome at both. Um, Deadfall is a strange sort of, you know, l- little-known British thriller. Um, I haven't seen it myself, actually, uh, starring Michael Caine as a jewel thief. Um, and it was another occasion for John Barry to work with director Brian Forbes. Uh, so he had, again, worked with him previously on Seance on a Wet Afternoon and the L room um and uh this was also the fourth movie starring michael kane uh for which barry had provided music uh the others being uh zulu the epcris file and the wrong box um so what uh, i D- deadfall had come out on cd uh it had been um like unavailable you know for years it, it had come out on, L- on lp in 1968 but then um you know it was kind of one of those really sought after collector's items. And so um, most of us as fans really didn't find it until it was released on CD by Retrograde Records um, in the 90s. And uh, it was a real treasure, a real highlight, because it uh, it features a, a real dark and bitter title song. It's kind of in the James Bond mold, and it's even sung by Shirley Bassey. Um, it's a song called My Love Has Two Faces. Um, so it's it's really about uh, this the character in the song sort of feeling completely betrayed by uh, her her lover. Uh, but I wanted to play a little bit of that song here. This is my love has two faces from Deadfall. My love has two faces, one false, one true. My love has. Which one is you? The first. 
So in addition to that uh, highlight, Deadfall also features um, an incredible and dramatic 14-minute uh, guitar concerto. It's the only uh, concert piece that, uh, that John Barry had, or concerto that John Barry had written, um, called Romance for Guitar and Orchestra. So it features uh, this sort of extended lyrical guitar solos punctuated by these um, tutti stabs from the orchestra, uh, tutti being the Italian uh, word for altogether. Um, so Barry, I had uh, read in, in the notes for Deadfall, he talked about how he spent six weeks writing this piece uh, for the movie. Uh, and the uh, the picture, Brian Forbes just edited the picture to this 14-minute uh, concerto. Um, so it's meant to um, act as both diegetic and non-diegetic music. And those are terms that are used basically when non-diegetic is music that is underscoring the film so it's it's not heard by the characters in the movie it's it's what we as the audience hear and then diegetic which is source music in a movie something that the characters are aware of so this uh, concerto is meant to accompany uh, underscore a robbery sequence but then also act as diegetic music uh, where the characters are in the film and they're actually at a concert hearing this same piece of music and Barry himself, it's his only on-screen appearance, but he actually appears on screen conducting the orchestra, uh, which is kind of neat because it's sort of a throwback to when Bernard Herrmann appeared on screen in The Man Who Knew Too Much uh, in 1956. But here is an excerpt of that concerto. Again, this is a Romance for Guitar and Orchestra from Deadfall. Other major musical highlight for that year, 1968, uh, that I mentioned was uh, also The Lion in Winter. Um, it's a film adaption of the stage play uh, written by James Goldman and starring Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine and Peter O'Toole as Henry II. So it's definitely a historical piece um, set in the Middle Ages. So um, The Lion in Winter, uh, it features this amazing, stunning orchestral and choral score from, from Barry. Um, it's pretty much as far from Beat Girl in the Knack 
as you can get. Um, and uh, again, it's one of these things where I had not heard of it until it was released on CD, I guess around 99 or 2000. And uh, it just blew my mind. I, I just, I, you know, mostly knowing Barry from the, you know, the Bond films and a few others here and there, I just had no idea. And it just immediately became a favorite, same as, as the Knack did when I heard that. Um, but uh, Barry, uh, even, you know, outside of the score, he also composed original songs in Latin um, in, a, in, a, in a period-specific style for the Middle Ages, uh, for mixed choir, um, using in, in this sort of polyphonic plain chant, uh, as it was called, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and also a Gregorian chant. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly uh, choral-focused score. Uh, but here's an excerpt of the main title from The Lion in Winter. That, uh, that main title cue is such a furious piece of, uh, of driving orchestra and choral forces. I mean, one can almost be uh, forgiven for thinking it's from the start of a horror movie like The Omen. <laughs> it, and in some ways, it kind of is, is a weird forerunner of what, uh, what Goldsmith wrote uh, for his main title or for some of his music for, for The Omen. Um, but, uh, so this, this score, uh, which was outstanding, uh, for, uh, it, it basically got, uh, Garner Berry another Oscar. It was his third Oscar win, um, just two years after Born Free. Interestingly enough, he actually did beat out, uh, one of the, in terms of the other nominees for that year, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was nominated for Planet of the Apes. Uh, so, you know, John Berry was still absolutely on a hot streak in the sixties. I mean, he really had just rocketed to the top. Um, so he got his third Oscar in just, you know, under, you know, just two years. Um, and you know, in interviews, uh, some of them with the liner notes of, of Lion and Winter, he, he attributed, uh, his win, his Oscar win to the music just sounding so radically different from James Bond. He was sort of, you know, figured that most people thought that that was the extent of his talent and skill. Um, and then Barry was also quoted in another interview, um, and I was going to read this quote. It's from the book Film Music uh, Screencraft uh, by uh, Mark Russell and James Young, who had interviewed him. This was uh, in the late 90s. Um, he had said, and I quote, When I did The Lion in Winter, people said it was a departure for me, but it wasn't. It was just my early training with Francis Jackson, the choral music that I'd studied. Uh, unquote. So this was what I mentioned earlier on when I said that he had studied harmony and counterpoint with the choir master at York Minster. This was this guy, Francis Jackson. So Barry had talked about how, you know, uh, choral music had always been part of his foundation as a, as a student um, when he had studied music. So writing something for choir was, for him, it wasn't anything out of the ballpark. 
So I'd like to play just a little bit more of the score from The Lion in Winter, um, specifically uh, this gorgeous music cue that accompanies the arrival of Eleanor of Aquitaine at a place called Shinon. Um, it's, uh, it, it features the female and male choirs. So it has a mixed choir, but they're sort of responding to each other, the men and the women. Um, and, uh, so these really, really high, clear trumpet lines. And it's, it's just, an, it's an example of some of the stunningly beautiful music that John Barry was known, uh, for writing. So again, this is a little bit of Eleanor's arrival. So John Barry closed out the 60s with two more fantastic highlights, one being his amazing score for On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the first Bond movie not starring John Connery, uh, and the other being Midnight Cowboy, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, directed by John Schlesinger, um, the only uh, movie uh, rated X to win Best Picture. Uh, it was really kind of just an unrated film. It wasn't really rated X like, you know, uh, well, it had adult themes, but uh, it, it wasn't what people would think a rated X movie was. But its most famous music for that film is the song Everybody's Talking uh, by Harry Nilsson. Uh, but Barry was called upon uh, by John Schlesinger to provide score for the movie, and uh, he provided uh, a, a score that uh, emphasized harmonica and acoustic guitars and uh, some strings. But he had some really interesting comments about his, uh, his theme for that, uh, which I wanted to read. This is, again, from that... Uh, that book, film music, uh, screencraft, and I wanted to read a little bit of what he had said um, about his his music for Midnight Cowboy. He he says on a quote, "So I wrote the harmonica theme in which the counter melody is more important than the melody, giving a general repetitive feeling like going nowhere to reflect the underbelly of New York. For the actual melody, I wanted something very unsophisticated that any guy sitting outside a gas station in Texas could play. We kept the instrumentation very simple." 12-string guitars, a rhythm section, and the harmonica, so that the theme of Midnight Cowboy in the score would fit into the musical language of the Nielsen song, unquote. That song, of course, being that everybody's talking. So here is a bit of his of John Barry's theme from Midnight Cowboy.
So as we move into the 1970s, uh, with three Oscar wins uh, and the, the world recognition and fame uh, brought about uh, from the James Bond series, um, Barry was really able to start charting his own career path from that time forward. Uh, he was able to be uh, more selective about you know, choosing which projects uh, that were brought to him, um, which seemed interesting uh, with that instead of him having to chase after projects. Um, and uh, he, his, his profile in the, in the 70s, as far as his, his music got to be really eclectic, um, he was uh, choosing projects in both film and television. Uh, there were several non-soundtrack uh, concept albums that uh, he wrote music for and produced. Um, and he even ventured into writing musicals uh, for both the stage and screen. Um, he had done um, a few others in the 60s, uh, but they, they weren't as big of a success. But in the 70s, uh, he had a huge success with the musical Billy um, on stage. And then as far as film, he did a, a, a musical for Alice's, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, and, uh, with both vocals with, you know, writing both songs and score for that. Um, but, uh, some highlights from him in the early seventies. Um, he started off the, the decade with his first, uh, Western score, his first score for a Western genre movie, uh, which is Monty Walsh from 1970. It's, it's kind of a revisionist, downbeat movie this was again at the tail end of when westerns had their heyday in hollywood so by the late 60s movies like the wild bunch were sort of taking apart the western mythos um and and then you of course you get to late 60s early 70s and then you get to movies where you know they often are uh bitter or cynical um and so monty walsh uh, is is of that ilk as far as a uh, a western movie um it stars lee marvin and jack plants um and this is two decades before dances with wolves so this is 1970 again and dances with wolves was 1990 so it's 20 years before uh barry had fully transitioned into that lush sonorous orchestral style uh that again had brought him such uh, worldwide rec- recognition um Yet in both Monty Walsh and Dances with Wolves, there is an attempt to capture the majesty of the West, um, along with a sense of longing and nostalgia for what it once represented. It's interesting, you can kind of hear it in both scores. So here he uh, he penned a, a title song uh, with lyrics by Hal David, uh, the second of their three collaborations. Uh, the song's called The Good Times Are Coming." And it's actually sung by Mama Cass of the Mamas and the Papas. So here's a bit of that title song from Monty Walsh, The Good Times Are Coming. I'm not about to come unhinged when everything goes wrong. A fact is something to be faced, but not for very long. The good times are coming. Long. 
So that uh, bittersweet melody uh, is is really the hub of the score. Um, everything kind of revolves around it. Uh, but there are a few secondary themes uh, that are equally as memorable. The most quote-unquote Western-sounding theme um, as heard in the score. Uh, there's a cue called Roundup and another one called Across the Prairie. Um, and it's more of the what you would expect to hear from a, uh, a film, from a Western genre film. Um, the, the melody has these really wide leaps, these wide intervallic leaps. Um, it's it's kind of like the contour, again, it's almost like sketching a landscape with these big up and down uh, you know, parts of the, the melody. Um, there's also these galloping strings and xylophone uh, combo that sort of play underneath. And then there's this steady rhythm um the almost like you know again sort of a, 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 a like sort of you sound of a cowboy on a horse um and every part of the cue has a place and serves a purpose and i think it's an example of um barry's eco- economical use of notes um you know one thing that that john barry's i don't think he ever really put a note in place that it didn't need to be there he never you know seemed to sort of overwrite um or over orchestrate um every piece every you know piece of that cue or that you know even that title song has a place in serving you know the overall uh musical effect um and whether it's a melody or a counter melody or the rhythm um or you know the harmony so it's just a great example of that so here's a little bit of this cue called roundup again this is from monty walsh Another highlight from the early 70s uh, from Barry and another sign of his um, his style sort of transitioning um, is from a movie called Walkabout from 1971. Uh, it's directed by Nicholas Rogue, and it follows two siblings who are lost in the Australian outback. Um, and it's actually, I, I, I learned it's a movie that's mostly improvised. Apparently the script was, you know, less than 20 pages long. Um and it's a very surreal uh, sort of movie. It's, it's very much about the visuals of, of, the, uh, of being lost in the outback. Um, and John Barry provided this really melancholy score, which seems to, um, I think, kind of paint the loss of innocence that these two kids experience, um, uh, the two siblings, the, their brother and a sister. Um, and uh, his, his orchestration includes strings and woodwinds and harpsichord, and also a mixed choir at times, which give it this weird sort of ethereal quality. Um, 
but uh, I think with the harpsichord added in there as part of the uh, instrumentation, it, it's sort of like the one lone aspect of civilization in, in the theme, um, while they're sort of lost out in this, you know, completely in the middle of nowhere, as far from civilization as you can get. At least that's kind of the 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 reading that I give into having the, a harpsichord as part of the uh, part of that uh, the theme. Um, but uh, the it's it's also uh, the the melody. There's a melody and a counter melody that sort of weave around each other um, in uh, in almost a slow sort of hesitant dance. Um, and I I think it's a it's another marvelous example of uh, how perfect Barry's sort of elegant melodicism. Um, is sort of the perfect companion piece for these visually striking movies like A Born Free or A Walkabout or An Out of Africa. Uh, so I wanted to play some of the main theme uh, from John Barry's score for Walkabout. Uh, that's from 1971. So it was only a few years after this that um, uh, John Barry decided to uh, move out of England, and he actually moved to Majorca, Spain. He uh, had uh, built himself a, a villa there. Um, he essentially kind of needed to take a sabbatical. Um, he had, you know, had scored so many projects after becoming so popular, you know, throughout the '60s and then the early '70s, um, and he just sort of needed to recharge. Um, in that same year's walkabout, he did another uh, great picture uh, called The Last Valley, starring Michael Caine, with a score that really is a nice companion piece to the line in winter, as far as choral and orchestra. Um, he uh, worked on the that uh, the, the film musical um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. He wrote his stage musical Billy. Um, he did another Bond movie, The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and so in 74, he took a break and he turned down all projects. And it wasn't until 75 when he was offered a TV movie, Eleanor and Franklin. A, it was a, a basically a TV movie for the States that he decided to uh, take that project. And so he moved to Los Angeles uh, in 75 to work on this. And funny enough, he never really left. 
<laughs> he moved to Los Angeles in 75, started working on Eleanor and Franklin, then got offered a few, you know, another movie, and then another movie. He, he did Robin and Marion, then he got offered the Dino De Laurentiis big remake of King Kong, which was a huge, spectacular sort of production, and then just continued to stay in Los Angeles for the next five years. So it's kind of funny how, you know, he had, he did take that year off, and it's something that he had, you know, talked about being something he recommended to everybody. Um, but it's kind of funny that from that point forward, I think that the, the second half of the 70s is when you really kind of hear Barry's sounds or a transition further into what became most familiar and beloved by audiences and fans um, in terms of it became... Uh, you you see, hear more of the hallmarks of his orchestration, the lush orchestration, uh, the the larger brass section, um, these high registers set against really low registers in the orchestra. So there's not much in the mid range, and it lends his music this big cavernous sort of feel. And it was just that gradually thickening of his orchestral textures that started to happen from that the second half of the 70s and on through the 80s through those other movies that you know brought him you know even more uh recognition and so he started to shift his, his style into a more symphonic structure less jazz and pop um always a strong melodic focus um and oftentimes there was still a song you know as, as the centerpiece um but i wanted to mention um when he was hired for king kong so, like I said, he moved to the States in 75 to work on Eleanor and Franklin, the TV movie, took a few more projects that came up, and then he uh, he took King Kong, which, again, was a Dino De Laurentiis production. It was a, you know, uh, a big-budget remake of the film, and uh, John Barry apparently had a soft spot for the original 1933 King Kong, uh, which had been scored by Max Steiner. It was one of those movies that he watched uh, time and time again when he was a kid in his father's cinemas. Uh, so he, uh, definitely jumped at the chance to score it. And the, the producers obviously didn't want to go down a Max Steiner route. They wanted a, a very prominent musical score, but they wanted John Barry's touch. Um, now, interestingly enough, this score is maybe one of the most multi-thematic that he had done up until that time. Um, part of it is just sort of a practical reason. Um, they were under huge time crunch to get this movie out in theaters, and so they were shooting and editing, and um, John Barry and most people in the production never actually saw a finished part of the finished product of the movie until a couple weeks before it opened. So John Barry never got to score a finished print. He was basically getting delivered reels of film as they were finishing them, and he was just scoring it as they went. So it basically meant he could never really, you know, look in the rearview mirror. He just had to keep moving forward. So he wound up composing multiple themes for King Kong. Essentially, as you see different aspects of his character in the movie, um, such as there's sort of a mystery of Kong theme, there's a power of Kong, there's a fate of Kong. Uh, so there's multiple themes for King Kong um, that just keep getting added to the score. Um, but interestingly, the love theme that he has for uh, the the lead character. Uh, character uh, played by Jessica Lange, um, uh, Dawn, and then sort of the love thing between her and Kong is like the one backbone of the whole score from start to finish, is that love theme never really strays very far. Um, and and that, that love theme actually winds up being the spine of the score. So I want to play a little bit of the uh, the opening theme from King Kong's, is, you know, contains some of that thematic material that is heard a lot in the score.
And now for an example of the love theme from the movie. This is from an early scene. Um, it's a montage sequence uh, on the boat that's headed uh, to Kong Island. Uh, but this is uh, a prominent display of Barry's love theme from the film. Uh, again, this is from King Kong from 1976. <laughs> So hopefully you can hear how Barry's sound is transitioning as the decade moves along, how it is sort of thickening up in its orchestration and becoming more lush and romantic uh, from, you know, where it started and even from in the in the 60s. Um, it's basically Barry kind of transitioning into a more romantic period uh, from the middle of the decade on. But I'd mentioned how at the start of the decade, Barry had come in, uh, you know, riding high from the 60s, being very sought after, and he was able to be really selective about the projects that he was choosing about the uh, the films. But he was also choosing some eclectic items. And uh, one example of this is uh, is to be found is, is one of the more obscure and eclectic movies that he scored in the 70s. It's a Bruce Lee martial arts movie made after Bruce Lee passed away. Uh, this is Game of Death. Uh, it was released in 1978 but contained fight scenes uh, with Bruce Lee that were shot in 1973. Uh, weirdly, the movie, uh, part of the plot of the movie has Bruce Lee's character get accidentally shot on a film set with a prop gun. Um, and uh, the funeral sequence that is in the movie consists of actual footage from Bruce Lee's actual funeral, so which is kind of morbid. Um, but uh, but Barry came in and, and uh, he just thought it would, I, he had said that he just thought it would be a fun project. Um, basically provided a few themes, uh, a, a main title, an action theme, and a love theme. Uh, but this is Barry's main title, which, which has a real direct, determined brass theme and this funky percussion.
Following on from this, there were several more TV movies. Uh, there were a few films that weren't pleasant experiences for Barry, um, specifically The White Buffalo and First Love, uh, both of which saw much of his music either uh, completely cut or replaced uh, by other tracks. Um, and, uh, and then in 1977, he scored the underwater thriller The Deep, uh, starring Jacqueline Bissett, uh, from uh, Peter Benchley, the writer of Jaws. So uh, it has a, his, his main theme for, for the movie, um, again, as Barry continued to transition into again, that lush romantic textures, he provided this very gentle, lovely theme that kind of drifts and floats like a boat on the water. And again, it's interesting that, you know, if maybe this movie had been made 10 years prior, it may not have been as romantic of a score as it was when he scored it in 1977, um, seeing it's supposed to be this underwater thriller. But uh, the, his main theme was uh, also done as a title song, uh, performed by no less than the uh, disco queen herself, Donna Summer. Uh, so I want to play a bit of that main title uh, from The Deep. So this is from 1977. So I always find it surprising that uh, it starts off with just that really gentle uh, piano with the, you know, these really soft flutes underneath it. And it has this melody that almost seems to be, it just sort of ascends and descends in sort of an easy pattern that, you know, that doesn't, the intervals aren't too great. So you don't feel like you're on these really choppy waves. It just feels like this very gentle swaying sort of um, motion in that uh, melodic line. Uh, but uh, for contrast, um, here is the version, the vocal version, as sung by Donna Summer. So I find it interesting that even as John Barry's sound sort of 
uh, transitioned and matured um, in, later in the decade, uh, that uh, it, his melodies were still perfectly applicable to pop songs. It hadn't really changed from the days of, uh, uh, of Goldfinger um, and uh, the Bond films and Born Free. Um, he, you know, still, and he still worked with a number of other vocal artists in uh, in the '70s, outside of the, the early one from Monty Walsh uh, with Mama Cass, and then this one with Donna Summer. Um, but uh, so to round out the decade, uh, in 1979, there was sort of an unofficial trilogy, I like to call it, of outer space movies scored by John Barry. Uh, there was the Disney, uh, the big budget Disney production, The Black Hole. Uh, there was the uh, wild James Bond adventure, uh, Moonraker. And there was the ramshackle sort of Italian Star Wars ripoff, uh, Star Crash. Star Crash actually was a 1978 production, um, so I'm kind of stretching it here because it was released in the U.S. in 1979. So I'm kind of thinking, like, if you were a John Barry fan and watching his movies in 1979 in the States, you would have seen three outer space movies that he did music for. Um, but I wanted to focus on uh, The Black Hole. It's one of my very favorite scores from Barry. I love every cue from this score, and I really actually wish I could just play the whole thing right now. Maybe I would just start with the main title and never stop. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he composed uh, several uh, several themes for the, for the movie. He has two sort of recurring main themes, um, one which actually was featured as an overture. Um, the, uh, the, the main title, uh, is sort of this dark waltz set tune, sort of this, this dark waltz, uh, which really characterizes the, the swirling image of this, of the, the black hole, the swirling maelstrom, um, which really kind of, uh, inspired from, uh, Barry this, uh, really hypnotic tune. In a way, it kind of swirls and, and, and hypnotizes you kind of like, um, Bernard Herrmann's main title for Vertigo, the way it kind of has this circular motion to it uh, but it also has the the sort of thunderous underpinning and, and the synthesizer chords uh, to give it a real sci-fi feel so here's a bit of that main title uh, from the black hole You know, what's funny is that main title is almost slightly seductive. <laughs> it almost feels like it's seducing you into the black hole. Um, I, I kind of think with, with John Barry, I kind of feel like with John Barry's music, he could pretty much make anything sound sexy. Um, but he, uh, prior to this, uh, he really hadn't done any sci-fi movies. Um, you know, there was always a little bit of a sci-fi element to James Bond, uh, some space sequences in You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever, but more, mostly just with satellites floating in space. So he'd never really done kind of a complete out-and-out sci-fi movie up until um, 
the black hole and uh, star crash and um, and even you know most of uh, parts of moonraker um but uh, yeah so barry had seemed like an odd choice at the time but in that post star wars um uh, time period that post star wars era where it was just the glut of sci-fi and fantasy movies like every composer pretty much seemed to get their chance because every studio wanted their to put their science fiction movies you know front and center um, interestingly, though, the black hole was seen as sort of a reaction to or, or inspired by Star Wars, but I had learned that it actually was in pre-production from 1975. Uh, Disney had actually put it in in pre-production as a sort of a disaster movie in space. It was sort of seen as the Poseidon Adventure in space, and they even cast Ernest Borgnine, um, who had been in the Poseidon Adventure, um, and Roddy McDowell as well. He's one of the voices of the uh, of one of the robots in the black hole, but he had been in the Poseidon Adventure. So it's interesting that it still had those elements of it, but once Star Wars hit, everything got fast-tracked. There were robots put into it, more lasers, so it became a little bit more of a uh, big-budget uh, sci-fi spectacular at that. But the other uh, main thing that I want to mention is this um, really kind of uh, bright, percolating, brassy march, uh, which almost plays like an inversion of John Williams' Star Wars main theme, um, if, you, if you listen to it closely enough. But following the overture, it's not really heard again until very late in the movie, and it's in, it's, uh, in real stark c- contrast to the rest of the score, which is a lot of minor key, a lot of dark um cues turbulent um and uh sort of tortured and and yet this is completely a major key contrast to everything else uh, in the score continued to be in high demand throughout the 80s and 90s, um, effortlessly proving his mastery at those uh, the lyrical, romantic score. Um, but he also tackled uh, three more James Bond pictures. Uh, he uh, did the oddball movie Howard the Duck, um, and uh, a few more high-profile films like The Cotton Club and Chaplin, uh, some thrillers um, like Jagged Edge. Uh, he did some some scores that were all electronic, which is interesting. Uh, you know, something that other composers of his generation had moved into, like Marie Shar and, and Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, and of course, uh, he went on to win two more Oscars uh, for 1985's Out of Africa, and then also Dances with Wolves uh, in 1990. So he opened the decade uh, with a little time travel romance movie uh, that initially went unnoticed, uh, but then it kind of grew into a cult favorite uh, thanks to uh, airings on TV and the home video market. And this was Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. 
so uh, John Barry shares the soundtrack with a uh, the the classical composer Sergei Rachmaninoff, the Russian classical composer. Um, specifically, his um, his work Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini. Um, interestingly, the uh, the initial suggestion from the the writer of Somewhere in Time had been for Mahler, but it was Barry who had recommended uh, Rachmaninoff. So his score uh, has to sort of dovetail into this and work in concert with it, no pun intended. Um, but Barry's music beautifully uh, underscores the, the movie, and it, it's a very, the, the whole bittersweet nature of the movie is finding your true love only to tragically lose them again. Uh, so here is some of Somewhere in Time. The, uh, the soundtrack for Somewhere in Time uh, became a, a top-selling record uh, for Barry. I think it even went gold. Um, and it really cemented that lush, romantic quality that his music had transitioned into. Um, another highlight from the 80s uh, was his score for 1981's Body Heat, uh, directed by Lawrence Kasdan and starring uh, William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. Uh, this was actually her film debut. So this was an homage to film noir of the past, uh, specifically Double Indemnity from 1944. Um, for this, uh, you know, Barry was, he composed a, a jazz-infused score, um, but very dark. Uh, it was not a sort of lighthearted jazz at all. This was uh, is dark, uh, dramatic, uh, but also seductive. There were a lot of uh, intense passages in the score. Um, but what's, what I find interesting is, uh, so it does kind of harken back to some of the, the darker films that he did in, in the sixties and seventies, um, you know, such as the chase or such as deadfall and, and even some of the darker moments in, um, Monty Walsh or the day of the locust, some of the things like that. Um, so it wasn't anything that he was unfamiliar with, but he just didn't, he didn't score as many of these, uh, you know, once he got to the eighties and nineties. So, um, yeah, the main theme, uh, it has a melody that's on saxophone, um, and it's pretty directly alluring. It's not really sort of hiding any of its uh, intentions. But what I think is interesting is there's this four-note motif at the start of it that seems to be the only warning that you should be worried, you should be concerned uh, about uh, about this alluring melody.
So that particular recording of Body Heat is from an album that John Barry did in the 90s, uh, part of a pair of albums called Moviola and Moviola 2. So it's not the original soundtrack, uh, but uh, he did both those albums, the Moviola albums, are great representations, great recordings, performances uh, that Barry, uh, you know, that Barry conducted. Um, that kind of give an overview of a lot of highlights from his career. Um, so definitely well worth uh, seeking out both of those albums uh, if you're sort of uh, interested in, in a lot of his stuff. So um, I wanted to, you know, kind of close with uh, the, the last major highlight uh, from his career. So um, in, the, uh, in the late 80s, um, 88, um, Barry suffered an, an, an incident where uh, his esophagus ruptured. Uh, this was around 88. Um, and he had to go through uh, multiple surgeries uh, to correct this. And um, during that time, he wasn't able to work at all. So he basically spent two years, you know, out of the out of the industry uh, while he recovered. But uh, he came back uh, in full force with Dances with Wolves in 1990. Um, so uh, Kevin Costner, he actually wasn't the first composer uh, that was initially hired. Basil Polidurus had originally been uh, hired to score, but he had a, a scheduling conflict with another film. So John Barry came in. So Costner sought out John Barry. Uh, for his his western, which is sort of a nostalgic look at it, it's not really. Um, it, it maybe you know could be considered you know rose colored glasses. Um, but uh, Barry came in and provided what is an absolute uh, career highlight. I, I think it's you know it's rightfully um, uh, praised and and uh, and lauded because it's an absolute uh, masterpiece from his career. I just think you know it's it's like he spent two years recovering from these surgeries and came back just brimming with ideas melodic and harmonic and rhythmic and he just poured them all into dances with wolves um it was really only his third western so he had done monty walsh in 1970 he did legend of lone ranger in 1981 and uh but his you know this this really is kind of an apotheosis as they say for for a career um he uh he composed you know at least you know six to ten different themes um there's travel montages there's character themes um it's it's really just an absolute um treat uh, as far you know musically but here is john dunbar's theme So this is a Western score that uh, really eschews much of the usual musical vernacular of, of past movie Westerns. Uh, it doesn't really kind of borrow or refer uh, to what people consider the uh, standard sort of Western sound um, that they had in the 40s and 50s, um, or even like the Morricone sound. Um, this is really presented with Barry's unique musical language and approach. 
Uh, although he does bring in the harmonica a few times, so it does it, it does have a little bit of that Western uh, flavor. What I think is fascinating about this score, and a point I just want to make about John Barry overall, is the subject of point of view. What is the point of view of his music in each project? Um, this is something that he excelled at, I think, was selecting uh, a particular point of view and then expressing it, distilling it into a musical statement um, that is was absolutely perfect for that movie. The point of view could be a location like Africa and Born Free or the black hole in the black hole. Uh, the point of view could be a state of mind like in Midnight Cowboy in that circular counter melody that just never went anywhere like the characters. Um, the POV could be a relationship like in Somewhere in Time and that's that was his music's point of view. Um, here in Dances with Wolves, his point of view is the main character, John Dunbar, which may seem obvious, uh, but it didn't have to be. Um, Dunbar is surrounded in the movie by characters who are cynics, characters who are self-centered, self-serving, even malicious, and characters who are suspicious. Uh, but, Don, but John Dunbar is an idealist. Uh, he's an optimist. He may be naive um, in how he views uh, the, the West, how he views his place in the country, um, and, you know, who he considers himself to be as a, as a decent person. Um, and the music expresses his point of view throughout the movie. Um, even when approaching uh, the Native American village uh, led by uh, the character Kicking Bird, uh, played by Graham Greene, it's scored with this sweeping passage of utter beauty. Again, just at, that's John Dunbar's sort of him taking in what he is seeing in this vista. Uh, so this is a cue called The Village. There's just so much great music from Dances with Wolves. I wish I could play it all, kind of like with the Black Hole. Um, but uh, but following on this uh, triumphant return uh, to the art, uh, like I said, so you know Barry came back and um, you know had one of his hugest successes with Dances with Wolves. You know, critically, commercially, it was you know he won a Grammy for the album. Um, so he continued composing uh, for film from that point forward. Um, such as the IMAX feature Across the Sea of Time, uh, The Scarlet Letter, the Demi Moore version, um, Mercury Rising with uh, Bruce Willis, and then several more non-soundtrack albums, uh, such as The Beyondness of Time and Eternal Echoes, all up until his unfortunate passing in 2011. But I think his unparalleled uh, and unique contribution to movie music will always be remembered and enjoyed. Um, I want to close with a quote. Uh, it was the end of an interview in that book I mentioned, the film music screencraft book. Um, but I wanted to read this quote here from John Barry. 
The most important thing is to find your own voice as a film composer. It's orchestration, but it's also your own harmonic and melodic voice. Having done that, you can work on contrasting scores, whether it's a Bond movie or Midnight Cowboy or Out of Africa. They're all vastly different subjects, period, theme, and style. But the music will still have a certain characteristic voice, which will always come through your own musical DNA. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into John Barry's music, uh, specifically the non-James Bond side of his work. Uh, I hope to uh, to plan to do one uh, that covers his Bond scores as well uh, at some point soon. If you're interested in learning more about Barry, um, check out the site johnbarry.org.uk. Uh, it's a pretty good resource about his career. Uh, soundtrack albums and even the non-soundtrack albums, uh, concerts of his music, and then uh, even other accomplishments. Music in this episode was composed by John Barry and from the following films. Dances with Wolves, uh, Beat for Beatniks, and Hit and Miss are actually both album tracks uh, from the John Barry 7. Uh, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, The Knack, Born Free, Deadfall, The Lion in Winter, Midnight Cowboy, Monty Walsh, Walkabout, King Kong, Game of Death, The Deep, The Black Hole, Somewhere in Time, Body Heat, Dances with Wolves again, and then we're wrapping up with Fun City from Midnight Cowboy. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, uh, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Uh, find my blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's the score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show uh, by way of iTunes, uh, please feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening. 